I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. everybody it's it's definitely been a while it's christmas time christmas time it, 2020 yeah in the the middle of the the quar in the middle of the endish of the world um we come back to you here at the turning of the tide <laughs> but uh <laughs> yeah i don't know i don't know if we have or not but uh i know that things are probably going to continue to suck for a long time uh but hey it doesn't have to there's one less way that it's sucking right now because i we are back ish yeah well i wouldn't say this is a regular thing no i mean we're we're still distanced um we're we're anti-socially distanced i guess which is we're just in each other's houses and we brought back a the third member of our trio of our kingston trio um sam mulvey How's it going, Sam? Hey. Hey, wasn't Q War written by William Shatner? <laughs> Q War. <laughs> did Shatner put Q in a Star Trek book? It, I don't know. And then what I know about Shatner is it seems like if a Star Trek element didn't relate in some way to Captain Kirk, he probably doesn't know that much about it. <laughs> oh, which is yeah, which is why that I, documentary I, I, that he did, where he was talking about the turbulent first years of Star Trek: The Next Generation, is so utterly shocking because I'm like, okay, was Shatner replaced by like a replicant because he's caring about Star Trek that isn't about him? <laughs> I forgot briefly that Q was a character. I was thinking of the Tech War novels. Yeah, like, okay. He was. It, the, was it a? It was a Quar to Q War, and then I guess then you move next to Guar. I guess. Yeah. So apparently, yeah. the Federation I, must be destroyed, scum dogs. <laughs> we, I went down a rabbit hole not too many years ago, uh, not too many, excuse me, days ago. I just seemed like years. Uh, Cameo dot com, which I I just now <laughs> found out that it exists, and uh, oh yeah, I don't know which of the what if it's the lead singer or not of Guar. You can have a, a video from him for like twenty five bucks. So if we ever wanted to have a a Guar tie in for Radio versus the Martians, it's only it's only a buck fifty. Yeah, I it seems that- like there there is an opportunity if, for a podcast if somebody wants to do a guar related quarantine podcast and just call it quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> I I all I see are the potential for puns that are just hang, hanging ambient in the air, and if somebody misses one, I'm like, well, I don't want to use that pun, but I don't want it to go unused. <laughs> Yeah, I oh jeez. Uh hey, Guar, hey, I, can you tell I haven't been in front of a microphone in a while? I just Hey, it's okay. Fell over We're, and died. <laughs> we we have the same sort of thing. I'm actually in some weird way kind of utterly terrified even though fun size episodes are kind of by their very definition the least structured. There is literally no bar we have to meet except not being so boring that people decide to turn this off. And- yeah, well, I- well, hopefully the absence that we've had, which has been, what, six months now. I think we recorded in June, am I right? 
Um, yes. So we, and we Mr. Have been Sam all... Mulvey was our last guest on right. that. Actually, it's the same day. <laughs> it's the same. Yeah. <laughs> we're just cutting this episode up from June, and now we're releasing it in December. That's the magic of time shifting, ladies and gentlemen. Well, I'd like to say that it, it feels like the same day, but not, not from here. A no. lot's happened since then. <laughs> lots I happened. would say that the thing that I've, if I, we've learned anything from from the quarantine, it's that, you know, just being starved for social interactions uh, just warps and bends your perception of time. And it oh, yeah. feels like this has been going for about three years now. Now, a year ago, like if, 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 uh, Casey had contacted me on Signal and said, "Hey Sam, we're gonna do a, a episode of Radio versus Martians. We'd like to invite you. Uh, do you want to be on?" I, you know, notebook comes out. Okay, what are we discussing? What is my, you know, what what character, you know, which asshole Sam do you want for this episode? Um, and, and usually, uh, you know, usually there is some study followed, and. And so and so he contacted me uh, this week and go all right, uh, notebook comes out. What's the topic? Uh, he's like a holiday. I don't know. <laughs> and okay, two years ago that would have been cold sweat. You know, like oh god, I, oh no, I would feel I would feel the truck light headlights approaching. <laughs> and um, uh, but but now today end of twenty twenty, I you know what that. If I get hit by a truck, that means I was touched by something. I'm oh, in. humans. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, it, it's so weird when you when you look at this because it's like we already as podcasters have an unusual sort of mental makeup that on one level we want everyone to hear what we think about things, but we don't want to look people in the eye. And now we're even more starved for that, that we don't even have those regular weird little social interactions, whether it's uh, the post shows that you guys used to do for Ask an Atheist or just being able to go to a bar or a sports game or a comic convention or any of the places where you could just share physical space with a stranger for some kind of shared interest. And, now we're just like, oh my God, please talk to me. Um, we're <laughs> yeah. like that dog that's been left indoors for three days and we're like, oh my God, you're home. I thought you were dead. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's the it's the the sort of necessary everyday interactions that you have because most people probably spending the days inside like I am. And then every so often, you know, you've got to go to the grocery store or to the pet store. And the last time I was at the pet store getting some cat litter, the uh the fellow behind the counter had his name tag and it said Keanu and I was like oh my god I'm meeting a Keanu and I complimented on on his name and he said thank you and uh, of course this is behind masks but it's amazing what the eyes and eyebrows can convey in a conversation and I I said you probably get like someone making comments like two or three dozen times a day and he's like yes I often have people say what's it like in the matrix or something and oh. I said and I said no your name is fucking amazing and he said thank you and I said just imagine what it would be like if your name were Donald <laughs> so, I, would, I would much <laughs> rather have the name Keanu even if it meant people coming up and being like like whoa, because um, Keanu is a pretty fucking cool name to have. It's also Absolutely. one that doesn't doesn't have the the connotations that you get if I say your last name was Cosby right now, <laughs> where <laughs> if you have to share a name with a celebrity, Keanu Reeves is like a like remarkably cool dude, and that was one of the things that when we did the Keanu episode, 
uh, just kind of doing a general internet search, there is no CD underbelly to Keanu Reeves. It's it's all overbelly. It's all goodness. <laughs> it's all sunshine and light that you just find clip after clip of co-stars and directors going, my God, you're such a nice person. And then you kind of get them realizing that that's what you're supposed to say about your co-stars. Like, no, no, really? He's legitimately <laughs> an amazing human being. And it's a and everyone who ever has an interaction with him has something really positive. He's constantly um, giving up on the opportunity to make more money to help the project he's working on. He's always paying for somebody's surgery or doing something kind, giving up his seat on the bus. Um, there was an interview with some of the rando bus passengers in the movie Speed, and one of the ladies was like, he taught me how to make a rice dish at lunch. And it's like <laughs> everything is just nice and wholesome about this guy. And there, I mean, considering we live in an internet age now where if you're going to be shitty to a server at a restaurant or someone at the DMV, or you're just going to be an asshole anywhere, even if it's just once, there's going to be some record of that somewhere. There's going to be video of you being a dick. Um, even if it's not as bad as say like a traffic stop with Mel Gibson, there's going to be something negative about you, but there is absolutely nothing negative about Keanu Reeves. It's all positive. So when you have that name, um, you're attaching yourself to someone who's about as safe a bet as possible. It, it, you, you know, if the name Tom didn't mean a million things and it meant just Tom Hanks, that's the equivalent of what we're dealing with right. if you're named Keanu. And it, it is that it's it is definitely the thing where, well, there aren't too many people. I mean, as far as I know, there are no there are not, not another celebrity whose name is Keanu. And the fellow that I met who, you know, who works a mile away from my house is the only other Keanu I've ever met in the wild. But it's a, you know, it's a Hawaiian name, so you'd imagine that it was that it is or was pretty common. Um, but this this guy was probably south of 30 years old, I'd I'd expect. So, if you're even if you come from Hawaii, your parents can't help but being like, well, he's going to he's going to be named Keanu like his grandfather was, but everyone's going to know it's this Keanu now, you know. Mm. Right. It's 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 inevitable. So when people talk about lately, I've been thinking about it, and because um, uh, I have nothing but time to think while I'm in punch block horror town, um, <laughs> and I, I'm just wondering how exhausting it must be to be that guy, like for for Keanu Reeves to go out there and just be consistently nice, because he's obviously pulling the John Wick character from somewhere. Yeah. Like that isn't that isn't just coming out of the blue. He's got a he's gonna have bad days where he's gonna want to tell that puppy to fuck off, right? I mean that day is coming. <laughs> um, does he just stay home those days and like eat eat like I ice cream and and watch back episodes of Taxi or or like what is like you know? Cause, I get the impression Keanu seems like the sort of guy who either goes to a pistol range or plays a lot of video games to get that out of his system because it's not like. I, it doesn't seem like he could ever take that out on a person. That's what I'm thinking, because he's got. There must be some process, and uh, for those of us who haven't haven't reached the uh, bodhisattva ideal of Keanu Reeves, um, <laughs> I, I, I do kind of wonder what what you know what his secret is, because I, I could stand to emulate a little bit of it. <laughs> because he's also managed to hold on to that secret despite being successful and rich, and that's that's a combination of things that 
can turn you into an asshole real fucking fast. It's, see, you know, that see just every person named on Google News right now. Yeah, exactly. Right. Anybody who has, you know, enough notoriety or, you know, a Twitter blue check after your name or enough of a big pile of money that you don't technically have problems anymore, except stuff that you can manufacture for yourself. Um, these are all these are all things that make you callous. These are all things that make you kind of solipsistic in your ethical makeup. They're, they're kind of things that make you cruel. They're kind of things that make you act like a dick. And he has the wherewithal, the sort of self-awareness to treat people kindly. And it's not easy because the I think the richer you get, the more calories b- being kind burns. And oh man, that makes me all. When I'm thinking about this, um, I, all I can think of is I know there is a Facebook equivalent for celebrities that, of course, mere peons like us don't have access to. And I would love to just be a lurker on there for a few weeks and to see what not that the mask is dropped when you're in the club of people who have fame and notoriety and who the circles that they run around in is no longer just like the people on the block, then it's this whole other tier of, of amazing famous people. I would love to see what happens when the guard is down and how they, how they talk about the norms, the normies and how they're going to adapt when AE 35 Musk becomes galactic leader. (laughs) Oh God. (laughs) I'm hoping that somebody pulls that little ring out of Elon Musk's chest like in, a, in Dune, I don't know. I just—he feels like the sort of galactic leader who will end with an assassination. <laughs> like somebody is going to shoot him out of an airlock someday. That it feels like somebody will just have enough of his shit, and I'm hoping it's probably be a food server. That you can just tell looking at no, that no. guy. No, no, space food, sh- Mike. Space food, sir. Little yes. little protein cubes or whatever the fuck it is that he's eating at that point. He just looks like a guy who's shitty to wait staff. You could just tell with his entire thing. But he's he's one of those guys that thinks that he's incredibly charming and that his employees are all his friends and doesn't seem to recognize the fact that the employer employee relationship is inherently coercive and thinks they're all his friends because they laugh at his jokes. Um, he, he those might, people will eat he, him someday. He might also be in that level of, I mean, yeah, I think he's on that level of, of social remove that you are when you're just so rich that you're above everyone else, including the people whose livelihoods depend on, you know, you're, you're not going crazy. He might also be someone who carries with this kind of crazy, like, I'm going to be the progenitor of our spacefaring species. That might go so far in that it breaks in ways that you and I can't even imagine, you know, even though well, until he's not there somebody yet, else obviously. is the progenitor of our space-bearing feet species, <laughs> and then Elon Musk just calls that guy a pedophile. <laughs> I, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to, to my stock answer here again, and, and that's, I think Elon Musk is basically what would have happened if I was a bit more successful during the dot-com boom. Right. Oh, I is mean, he Mirror right. Universe Sam Mulvey? He might be Mirror <laughs> Universe Sam Mulvey, because, like, you know, he gets high and goes, we can go to space, man. And he's got the money to make it stick. Where yeah. <laughs> I get up the next day and, and I go, was, the, was I talking about building a spaceship last night? <laughs> and everybody's like, yeah, Sam, shut up. Oh, okay. And, and But no, but there, he doesn't have that that morning. Like, he gets up the next day and he's like, yeah, 
Half of Jet Propulsion Laboratories is outside with employment contracts. You ready to do this? And he's like, what? Yeah. He, and, like, this and, is a guy who regularly promises to save civilization but has no intention of doing it. He's like the Joe Bluth of messiahs. <laughs> well, he wants, to, he wants to save civilization in sort of a Stephen Baxter sort of way where this species is over, but he's going to pee out carbon on like Neptune. Mm. And, a, and, and a billion years from now, uh, his, his his piss children will <laughs> resurrect humanity. Like that's I, I, that he, that's what he wants. He to just do. watched I the think, a- movie AI too too many times. I think. I think that, and I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna paraphrase a friend of mine who said this about a certain genre of human, but I'm going to change it a bit so that it's about Elon Musk, and it's that Elon Musk is not someone who wants to save civilization. He wants to be a guy who has saved civilization. <laughs> yeah. He, wa- he wants to be the guy who already did it. He doesn't want to put in the work to do it. He just wants to be on that throne and have the adulation. And well, you realize how badly this dude wants to be Tony Stark, uh, but he's really more like Max Zorin from A View to a Kill. Well, there's some- he's really kind of a second or third tier Bond villain who, I mean, his name is, is fucking Elon Musk. <laughs> he's he's well, in the top three of people who should be straight up Bond villains in a movie with a name like that. The What was the name of the other one? Um, Elizabeth Holmes. What was the name of her company that she had again? Uh, no idea. Theranos. Theranos. Oh, Theranos. Right. Totally. Yeah. That is a Bond villain company if I've ever fucking heard it. It's well, like it, you could, anything it, short of being called Scorpio villain? Corp. Like, <laughs> isn't it actually a Marvel villain? Like, Th- I, I'm not up on that. Thanos but. was. That's why it sounds so similar. Oh, sorry. I forgot a syllable. Yeah. Um, but uh, people. Like, people think that when I say, hey, he's like me if I had money, they're thinking, oh, well, he's human, just like us. That's they th- where they think I'm, I'm going with this. He He's just like us. We should we should feel for... That's not where my mind is going. I'm moving in more of a, if it bleeds, we can kill it direction <laughs> with, with my comparison of myself and Elon Musk. It's like, I might hold the key to his destruction. <laughs> Well, get on and it, it. <laughs> and it might involve spray can cheese. Just saying. Oh there's, man, yeah, putting that, that is, out there. There's a piece of it I, that that it's the sort of not to bring it down to the lefty glasses wearing guy. There's a a function of it as is maybe if Elon Musk had lived in a different era. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. But like, no, you know, like he's the way to go to where he wants to go is through capitalism, and so of course, like. The one thing you could say is, well, he made a bunch of money, uh, uh, basically being able to make get people to spend money on the internet with PayPal, right? And it's his, also called underpaying your employees. Yes, of course. But then the next, the, the next step is, is money he's of. like, he's like, okay, well, what if I want to start dismantling or disrupting, disrupting in quotes, the uh, the uh, the fossil fuel industry? Um, and he's doing that, but then of course he does it. He has to do it through a publicly traded company, and then that just makes it impossible to happen. And so, how do you deal with it when you run it run into the wall of, well, I can't, I, I can't like fundamentally overthrow this because I have to do it. I have to work within the structure of capitalism to make it happen. So he's just, it's just going to be like one other weird little offshoot, and he's just clearly doesn't have the sort of personality fortitude to be the Harry Seldon you know he's not that he's not that kind of guy he's just a guy who was like maybe I can try to 
With well, some... it's the, the question of, I, I want to get rid of this thing, and we all agree it's bad, but I want to be the new bad thing. And, no. I mean, on one hand, you're like, you, th- you know, his worst fans, his apologists are all like, oh, he th- this idea that he's going to do something that kicks off the equivalent of the United Federation of Planets when it's more like he's going to kick off something like Whalen yutani <laughs> That's the kind of future that I see him doing. Because if he wants to be that good guy, he'd be that good guy now. Okay, and he's you really- not. You really need to watch Babylon 5, Mike. Like, <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there. You've been asking, and, oh. and I think you need to, to really expand your, your corporate dystopian uh, understanding to include the, the corporate dystopia that is the world of Babylon 5. Oh, so Babylon 5 is in a not good future. It's in a... It's in a... Yeah, it's in a future that it... It's not good. It's not bad. It just sucks, you know. Oh, hey, I know that world. <laughs> yeah, you do know that world. Yeah, um, and I like how Casey's being like, "Well, I don't want to be a glasses-wearing lefty." When Mike here has been like defender of the lumpen proletariat for like the last twenty minutes. <laughs> well, I, yeah. I just I, I love this this <laughs> I this wanna... supposed dynamic we have. I, I that always... isn't a dynamic at all. <laughs> I mean, I'm just gonna say if I'm ever gonna use the word capitalism, I think I have to like. It, once you once you drop capitalism in a sentence in a conversation, you've automatically you you put your flag down on the ground, right? So, well, yeah, I, ca- yeah. saying the word capitalism is like when you acknowledge the game, it's, you know, <laughs> right. that you're supposed to just accept it as a sort of background radiation. And right. instead, I mean, as nerd, you're like, oh yeah, that's the thing. Why every that's why all the properties I like suck because they're being steered by what makes money rather than what what is good art. That's essentially what it is. It's like, this is why we go, oh, hey, we found a formula for a Batman movie. Let's do that 20 times. This is why we have to reboot everything every three seconds. This is why, oh, God, why artists who create the things you love die in poverty. I mean, because this thing is making money and we want to keep all the monies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just mm-hmm. want to put it out mm-hmm. there that. I, I I threw my hat in the ring by actually using the word lump and proletariat. <laughs> yeah. yes. so, I, I I think that makes it clear where I'm coming from on that one. <laughs> yeah, it it's gotten harder to ignore the the world that we live in. I mean, and, and we're speaking this as like three middle agedish white guys that uh, stuff is starting to knock on our door in terms of being unavoidable. I mean, not, neither one of us is particularly wealthy. We're all, we're all not, we're not starving, but right. it's, it's definitely something where when it becomes hard, it becomes hard to do simple escapist stuff when the reality of all of these sort of fantasies are kind of, you know, just knocking on the door constantly. One of them I've really found over the past year is that I have to find a new relationship with cop shows. Yeah. I have to um, really kind of understand that when I see a cop on an episode of law and order that has as much relationship to a real a real cop and the real, the real institution of policing as it exists, as say like a singing crab in the Little Mermaid has to crabs in real life. <laughs> that this is a cartoon approximation of something, and that real cops has much to do with TV cops as they have to do with Green Lantern. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that it's it's just an element of wouldn't it be nice if, 
and I found that a lot of the more propaganda-ish elements are a lot less palatable to me than they used to be. And I found, and Sam, you'll be happy to hear this, that the most um, palatable and enjoyable cop show that still exists in this sort of dystopia we live in is Columbo. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. That Columbo is the cop fantasy that I wish all cops were like. If it was just this rumpled guy who targeted murderous rich people who get away with stuff, never pulls a gun, isn't sliding across the hood of a Camaro or knocking a guy down in an alley or any of the usual stuff. Um, he just talks. He talks and he thinks and he beats these asshole rich morons who think they're untouchable, who think that they're brilliant, who uh, wave their consumption in everyone's face, and then this guy who looks like he was poured out of a hamper just defeats them. (laughs) (laughs) At every turn, I love it. I love Columbo. uh, Under the circumstances, I was was ready, willing, and able to, to... to, to say that Columbo is on the inside of that group of, of shows that maybe we shouldn't auto watch at the moment because yeah because the pro- the propaganda is getting a little thick in here uh, yeah. which is which is a thing that I've been you know uh, yeah so wait a like, minute. all the I'd like to address the that. Law and Order shows I'd like to address that because ha- haven't we aren't we at a point where obviously Hollywood is more uh, is is a lot more sensitive than other parts of our society. Um, to, to backlashes like these I mean is it true in terms of stuff that's ongoing now like uh, Cops the reality television show was just straight cancelled like they just stopped. it was just renewed again oh was it really because the, <laughs> oh, the performative shit. element of our, oh. our activism has worn off and they're like okay is the heat off can I start making money again I, from I thought it was gone suffering? for I thought it was gone for good I hoped it was gone for good, Ugh. but that's the thing is that these, it's the same thing every time it's like, there are all these like people on Fox news. Let's say Tucker Carlson. Let's what just show use are him we as talking about? Cops. Uh, the cops, you know, oh, bad cops. boys, bad boys. Oh, it was God. canceled right. about yeah. six months ago and then it was uncanceled about a month ago. Quietly. What was it They're for? OAN? Is it, is it beyond OAN? Is that what it's, uh. Oh, God, it's probably on something. It's definitely on some network that probably has an eagle in the logo. (laughs) We should just, you know, as a general rule, if your logo has a bird on it, you're probably the bad guy. fucking Romulans um, yeah, it's, it, yeah just don't trust the fucking bird the yeah. bird will get you every fucking time anything with talons because you know what those talons are sunk into asshole you <laughs> that's what that shit is never trust it never trust a fucking bird <laughs> and it, isn't there a cops like an, an even worse cops like other like generic cops like Fanta cops or something like that. There was some <laughs> there, other. Was an, there was another cop type show called Live PD, but it's the same exact thing, which is okay. that it's a, a private corporation that makes a deal with police departments to ride along with them and film another person's worst day of their life. And of course, since all of the cops who have the camera guy with them want to get on television, they're a lot more likely to escalate that situation. And since this is probably at this point made up a generation of cops who wanted to be cops because of cops, 
that's how they learned that policing is, that it's running in, chasing down somebody who's terrified and might be have a mental illness or be on drugs and then slam them to the ground and that we're all supposed to laugh at this person. That's that's really what it is. It's an opportunity to other a person who is economically distressed or is of a different ethnicity. And we're all supposed to get entertainment from this. And then a lot of them are, you know, the reason why their faces aren't blurred is that a lot of the uh, the producers actually sort of imply heavily leverage somebody who's already scared in the back of a cop car to sign a form thinking that's the only way they'll be set free is yeah. to sign a release to let their face appear on TV. That's generally why it's there. There's actually a really good podcast I'd highly recommend called Running From Cops. It's only six episodes long. It came out last year. And it's really about what a fucking nightmare this show is and how we've gotten so used to a lot of this stuff. I mean, this is this is the stuff that, as an activist of any kind, you should get angry about because it takes something terrible and makes it something that you're so used to that you don't even notice it anymore. That right. it just becomes background radiation. Oh, that's the show Cops. That's been on television since I was in third grade. Oh, that's it's fine. Whatever. That's just what it is. That's what happens when cops go into poor neighborhoods. And then you start getting used to that sort of treatment. And what we really saw over the last year was suddenly the cops were treating white people that way. And now they were like, oh, my God, you know, cops are actually really awful. We should, you know, it's, that's really what kind of happened. I, is that, I hate, I have difficulty talking about cop shows, partly because, like, I I stopped watching them a while ago, and partly because I don't want to, like, when I say I, I, I stopped watching them, I'm not trying to, like, flex my cred here. Virtue like, signal, that's, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. I, I certainly don't want to do that. Uh, I just, I don't like cop, I, I, I all right. I come from a family of cops. Full stop. Like, there are cops in my family. Like, it was a thing. Uh, Chicago uh, cops, too, so Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, it kind of stopped in my parents' generation, fortunately. So, um, uh, at least on one side of my family. And and so I I got a sense that, that maybe what I was being told about about the police wasn't on the up and up. And so I was always kind of skeptical and and uh, i i'm skeptical about literally uh, any any congregation of power i'll put it that's just my natural tendency um so i'm not i i'm really not trying to virtue signal here but uh i did watch the first 48 a lot because it did it was kind of a, a, a you know it is one of those it is absolutely one of those shows where they're getting people to sign forms, but it follow it. It's more it, it's more cop focused, and and it kind of kind of tore open of just how weird homicide investigations are about how stuff just falls into this into their lap and in the investigations because they they're just going through the process of investigate investigating, and at the end of it they're like. Well, it's because we do what we do that we bring people to justice. Oh, come on! The guy literally just confessed, confessed, you sunny crocket wannabe. Yeah. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Well, it's it is. It's one of those things that it's. I'm more interested, really, because uh, yeah, cops coming back is definitely a bad example, and certainly the echoes, the sort of the societal echoes of cops as a thing. 
is probably pretty uh, pretty severe. But I look at things like, well, I'm pretty sure that there's still like at least one CSI type show still running on CBS that's still going. And then you have things like, oh, well, uh, you know, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which was a comedy, a very lighthearted comedy about NYPD officers, basically stopped their production. Um, uh, at, of course, I think they were stopped anyways, but they they scrapped their scripts for their latest season um, because they have people of color who are major characters in the show. And they're like, we have to deal, we have to do something completely different based on the fact that we can no longer do a lighthearted show about all these cops being virtuous good guys. Um, so it'll yeah. be, it'll be yeah. kind of fascinating to see what they end up doing because that show is as woke, I suppose, as you could have as a for as a cop show. And also, like, the, ma- the, the main characters, the leaders, the commanding officers are black. And so obviously that is going to, that's going to pepper the, the entire scenario with, some some super conflicting some cognitive dissonance right so it'll be fascinating to see what they come up with when they come back to it because can it still be funny in the same way and can it still be as lighthearted in the same way or do they just is it going to be like a lot of other shows like you know whatever ncis or whatever the hell they still do over at cbs um is it just going to be like well pretty much just we'll pretend lawyer shows well we'll pretend it doesn't exist which is probably how cbs is dealing with it the thing I'm a bit worried about, and that's the Tucker Carlson reference I was making earlier, which is that um, the worst people don't really care when they get caught. Tucker Carlson will say something horrifically racist once every three or four years that is more horrifically racist than the stuff that he says at the dog whistle level all the time. Mm. He will occasionally cross a line. And maybe he'll be the the favorite person of a mass shooter. You know, those things just happen. <laughs> and then what happens is that you get this sudden, you know, blowback. And then his his advertisers, again, this is how capitalism happens. And it has to be enough to hurt his ability to make money before people get hurt by his racism. Um, it gets to the point where it's costing him money. And then what ends up happening is those advertisers who know that he said that thing, who are apparently bothered enough by that thing that they don't want to make money off his highly rated television show anymore because it being attached to him hurts their brand, they wait a bit. They wait a bit, the heat comes off, and they go back. And those same advertisers are back to advertising him just the way that cops came back after about six months because they figure that anger has cooled. And the thing that I worry about is that the shows that you mentioned, like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, the ones that are staffed and probably written by people who are a hell of a lot more woke than anything that's coming on some other cop shows right. that are straight-up propaganda, um, that what ends up happening is the people in the cop shows that are actually trying to do something different or have a different tone who are conscious about this sort of stuff, they just straight up cancel each other out. And they just go, okay, we can't do this anymore. Enough people have lost the show or we have to retool the show into a different genre. And then it lasts a season and gets canceled. And now pretty soon all the cop shows are the bad cop shows because those are the ones that have been laying low and came back. Those are the ones that are like, no, we're just going to do whatever. We're going to continue to have our lead characters who are portrayed as heroic, putting their knees on the the necks of of bad guys 
and being told that's perfectly okay. We're going to continue to do stuff like beat up guys in interrogation rooms and portray internal affairs like the ultimate bad guys. We're going to keep doing that. <laughs> and uh, that's it's crazy, though, but that's what it is. Internal affairs has never been the hero of anything involving the police ever. They've always been somebody who's trying to stop them from getting the job done. They're just coming after good cops. And I'm like, fuck you. Fuck you. I don't even trust internal affairs to do things because they're just cops too. That's I, where we're, we're I, at. I really but it's feel like, like if you watching... were ever going to make a good guy cop show, it would be that. Uh, but I, I really feel like there's a – obviously not every person in the world – not every person in the country and or in the world who cares about watching – filmed stories is going to feel this way but i at this point in time you know i haven't i haven't shied away from watching i think i watched all of the rest of the dirty harry movies um since uh since basically the 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 latest uh the series of outrages i haven't i'm not like you mike because i didn't i didn't just sort of expunge it entirely from my my cultural diet um but i almost am at a point now where i feel like that it's you that what I, I put it in the same bucket that you would watching a western and with a western when you see behavior that is racist or reprehensible or just downright out of out of place you can say to yourself like this movie was made in 1983 and this is portraying people that were uh, uh, you know lived 100 years before that um so you can I, i'm hopefully i'm aware enough to be able to place that in context Apart from, you know, cop shows that are produced in the year 2021, if I'm watching <clears throat> a cop movie, I can also just recognize that it, like, it is radioactive in its own particular way, but it also is a time capsule of a, a certain era of naivety in our culture. Um, and and in a way, I can, I can sort of pigeonhole it and quarantine it off in one way that can make it palatable in the same way that like when you watch a western and you're like these guys are just casually murdering indians and for through no reason other than the fact that it was sort of like well we just oh. decided we were going to take their land and just destroy their civilization um and yet it's pretty off the hip right like in terms of how they deal with cowboys dealing with indians in movies it is couched in what the genre is, and it's considered to be something uh, where you can say that's the past. So, I, I, hopefully, that's a way we could deal if we get if we get police departments that in twenty twenty one and beyond that can start addressing this institution, these institutional problems. We can start to say those are things that existed in the past because we were naive, you know, and yeah, we were I fooled. Can, I can see that to some extent. I do want to say that I'm not completely temperamentally and in, in unable to watch a cop show completely where I kind of like, Oh, I just refused. This isn't me like sticking down some moral stance and becoming like the, the Phyllis Schlafly of oh, cop no. shows. Yeah, obviously. Um, I, I, I have to go into it, but there's certain times where I'm far, I'm just far more sensitive to it now. And there are levels in which I'm kind of ashamed at how nonsensitive I was for a long time. Yeah. I hear but that. Um, I was able to read Batman comics again, but I have to go into it with the understanding that Commissioner Gordon is about as realistic as Batman yeah. in, in that yeah. scenario. Um, <laughs> the fact that most Cotham cops are dirty probably helps a little bit. But I'm again, it's the thing of, if, you know, you ask these sort of questions like how great is Commissioner Gordon if he hasn't completely cleaned out all these dirty fucking cops? Is he really this perfect cop guy? Because um, 
some of these guys, they wear it on their fucking sleeve. I mean, they're like the bad guys in the movie um, Passenger 57, where it's just a bunch of dudes giving side-eye and you need to spot the bad guys. These guys are fucking obvious. <laughs> and uh, I, I just saw yeah, that movie it, a couple weeks ago, by the way. I thought that was a fantastic movie. <laughs> that is fucking great. Oh, uh, Wesley but, Snipes. Um, I mean, even outside of just that, I mean, we've had how many months when we haven't been in front of a microphone to absorb pop culture, to have some kind of escapism. I think it is important, though. I mean, yes, you should be angry about the things outside your window, but it's not healthy to not take a break from that. That's true. That everyone deserves a day off. It's not just a question of this is uncomfortable, because sometimes we have to be uncomfortable. It's a question of just general mental health, to not subject yourself with this steady, unceasing diet of stuff that makes you miserable. Um, so I would get kind of curious what you guys in popular culture have been enjoying. What is it that you guys have been watching? Any TV shows or movies or books or anything that you guys have been filling the time with that you might have been able to go outside during? Sam? Hello. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay, no, I literally, uh, the, I fell out of the call for a couple minutes, so. That's no, okay, you just missed um, what I was talking about, so no big deal. No, I, I, I caught most of it. <laughs> uh, I, and, and I did want to speak to that a little bit in that the cop thing, I, I think of it, uh, I think of it as sort of like the dragnet allele in American culture, in mm. the genetics of American culture. Yeah. Is that we're always going to have that, and I think the 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 solution to that is, I think cop shows are always going to be interesting because there's always some element of, of interest in, in the more crime enabled aspects of any culture. I mean, look at what look at what people pay attention to in, in Roman history and uh, and stuff like that. And that's always going to be a thing. Um, I, I do think we could spend more time humanizing the police and less time uh, treating them like a new pantheon of gods that uh, Dick Wolf Blitzer howitzer explosion guy likes to do um, chung 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 um and that means you know brooklyn 99 and then also holding them accountable for their actions when they do when they have human failings just like every other human being on earth full stop so uh you can edit that in as you need because i wanted to be a part of that conversation but i had some technical difficulties um uh, but as far as answering Mike's question, I haven't really. Um, and I, 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 it's, it's weird. I, I thought like, oh, I've got so much time. I can catch up on my books. I can catch up on movies. Uh, I download, you know, I, I, I downloaded some stuff I wanted to watch off, off stuff and, <laughs> and, uh, it just didn't happen. It just didn't happen. I'm way more interested in uh, what what have I been watching? This old Tony, BigClive.com, Aging Wheels, uh, My Mechanics, um, Musty One, like uh, like YouTube folks who who build stuff, uh, and. Um, Mainly because that's what I've been heavily focused on lately uh, is is building uh, myself. So that's kind of what I've been paying attention to. Um, I does that count as pop culture? I guess yeah, sure it does. does. Yeah, I, absolutely. YouTube counts. 
Okay. Um, yeah, because that's that's where I'm at. Is is uh, watching um, just um, random electronics people or, or car people, like the more mechanical side of it, uh, uh, just doing stuff and fixing things up and and uh, uh, taking care of a chicken coop in one case and. Uh, yeah, I like that's that's what I've been paying attention to, partly because I've started doing a little bit of that myself, uh, which maybe I'll talk about a little later. But well, I mean, uh, if you're close to the orbit of Rado versus the Martians, you know that uh, as I described Sam uh, and his relationship to KTQA, uh, the radio station in Tacoma, that Sam is like Jeff Fahey's character from The Lawnmower Man in that. He is the slow-witted guy who mows the lawn, but he is also God there as well. So that'll <laughs> that, that pretty much describes what Sam's what Sam's whole world basically is. Um, and it's pretty pretty damned impressive, I'll say. It's sure impressive to watch watch somebody who's good at their job do it. So I I appreciate it whenever uh, whenever those uh, waveform orchard videos come out because it's it is it is relaxing i didn't want to derail what mike no, please please pitch what, it what mike was saying um but uh yeah so uh i've been for the last three or four months now i've been documenting the build out of ktqa at um uh, on a youtube channel called waveform orchards which is just struggling to get over a hundred subscribers. <laughs> um, and uh, I've been really enjoying it. Is uh, And it, it's been neat. I mean... <clears throat> one second. Boy, you can really tell I haven't done this in a while. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I like, originally I wanted the build-out to be... Uh, 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 a community thing where my, my, my friends and people who are interested in community radio could participate and I would show people how to do stuff and hopefully people would show me how to do stuff because there are some parts of this that are completely new to me and um, and we would get together and you know cook up some radio stone soup and uh, uh, I can't do that at all and, and no. uh, it's clear that it's clear that I'm not going to be able to do that at all for a while. And so I just decided to do it solo for the most part. I've gotten some help from people who are in my group of three or four people that, oh, okay, I've gotten help from people who basically live in the same structure as I do. Um, and uh, uh, and I, I'm documenting the whole thing on, on YouTube. And it's been... I've never had this much fun with video, ever. Like I, I, I think everybody knows my 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 medium is audio. I, uh, I I've, I've always wanted to do radio. Radio is what I do. Um, podcasting was just uh, you know a, a way to do radio by different means, and um, and now that I'm doing a video channel about radio, I'm really enjoying it. I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with it, it and so that's what I've been. When I watch it, no. When I watch it, Sam, the thing that I wonder is, um, are you a, uh, is your f your show is it singular, or are there other channels, YouTube or otherwise, that are people that are in your particular position, which is the back end tech for radio stations? 
because obviously there's a lot of people who do the technology that power stuff but it's but obviously radio stations is a very very particular niche niche excuse me and i'm wondering uh if there are anyone that's a, that's a a competitor in that field of people who do diy videos for radio station technology as far as I know, there isn't anybody else, uh, and I, I did some looking uh, a few months ago, I, I have to admit I haven't looked recently, and lately it's become more and more clear that I go looking for something and my and somebody goes, how did you not know about this guy? <laughs> that always happens. Um, but what I've been finding on YouTube is like a lot of commercial like brochureware videos and stuff like that, or stuff from conventions. Uh, and that can be pretty good. Like there is some LPFM content on um, on uh, on YouTube, but nobody's doing it the way I. Nobody's doing a comprehensive. This is how I'm building my radio station out of some garbage, a dead chicken, and some donated hardware, hmm. uh, and a lot of donated hardware, I should say. Um, and so I, 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 it's a little bit unique in that respect, but it's also more like, um, the videos out there of people who do, who, you know, have a camera in a fixed shot above their work table and then just work on things. It's right. a little bit more like that. Right. Um, it's a little bit, you know, and it has a little bit of this old house in it, you know, what we're doing here, Sam is, um, but uh, it, it, yeah, I don't think anybody's doing no because the buildup of a radio station from the ground up is actually a relatively rare event. Yeah, I was gonna say um, the reason why I ask and the, the why the reason why it's fascinating not just because we know you and because we have clearly benefited from your expertise and still are. It's that um, there aren't too many people that are there are a lot of people that are doing what we do, which just you know requires a microphone and a laptop. Um, there are not too many people who are, say, getting a new license from the FCC or wherever in the world and being like, I'm going to create a terrestrial radio station. <laughs> that uh, that right. doesn't happen as often as two dingbats want to make a podcast, you know? Sure. I mean, I don't, I don't think the, the, it's that different, <laughs> but, uh, um, yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, LPFM stations come out window, it, you know, come out windows. There's a, a commercial and non-commercial window coming up next year, but not for LPFMs for a uh, full power. Oh. Um, so we might, we might see something from that. That would be good. But yeah, I mean, most people, when they get the LPFM, it's a mad rush to get everything together. And had this been normal circumstances, I think we would have been in the same place. We're just moving too quickly to document. Hmm. Um, Interesting. And uh, but because of COVID and and the lockdown and some other reasons that we haven't discussed uh, that are now public, we went fifty three minutes. It, we went fifty three minutes without saying the word COVID. By the way, just oh, just we did. To note. Okay, <laughs> that's great. That's fantastic. Um, <laughs> that I. I can take time and I can yeah. I can slow down and I can do the editing as I go and I can have I can have more of a two-way conversation with my viewers if if they would talk to me. Um <laughs> <laughs> and um and that, and that's yeah and that's been a lot of fun. Um the the so I I think there's some I'm taking care of some advantages and 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 like I said one of the things that I that is kind of driving me here is 
the need to document what I'm doing in case somebody else has to do it. Yeah. Not to get not to get weird, but there's some stuff going on in my life and uh and, and so a, a big there's a big push right now uh for me to get the studio running in a way that other people who are not me can use the radio station and um and to document everything I'm doing so that somebody else could potentially pick up from where I leave off. And that was a big part of the reason why I start why I finally decided to start uh the YouTube channel. That's great. Um Mike, are you are were you sitting on something? Were you pregnant with some bit of recommendations that you wanted to have for our listeners? Oh, sure. I I do. He always um, you always are. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've I've That's why we I've, love you. <laughs> I've marathoned a couple TV shows since this all started. I watched The Sopranos all the way through. Nice. Um for the first time I'd I'd seen a handful of episodes sprinkled throughout the years of that show's run and now I've watched all of them. That show, I think, really is a masterpiece and is something we definitely need to do a full panel episode on someday. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, it's it's funny, though, too, because it's a TV show that at this point, um, the first episodes are 20 years old, and I it becomes a period piece, whether you, you want to or not, not just the size of everyone's computer monitors and the type of flip phones that they have. and uh, But there's... It feels like it's a, a TV show from a place in time, but there's also, it's so well crafted that I think that it's timeless. And I think that I pull things from it now, now that I'm a 41-year-old man that I wouldn't have if I was watching it all the way through when I was 20. And like, I think in a weird sort of way, and I don't know if this was the intent, it feels like there's a lot that that show has to say about toxic masculinity and how it destroys it's a sort of a corrosive culture that these guys live in and ultimately they end up destroying themselves because they're unable to be vulnerable or supportive of each other and instead it's just like blood in the water uh nastiness and that you see that all their talk of honor and uh you know loyalty and all that stuff you see how much of it is just bullshit and it's actually for all of the bad fans that show has all the people who have the Tony Soprano poster from Spencer's gifts up in their uh, dorm room uh, at the time. Um, it's a show that's incredibly uh, critical of its characters and of the, the premise in a way that I, I think was brand new at the time. It certainly kicked off a wave of prestige TV shows about complicated, morally gray men and uh, it's it really holds up. I definitely want to talk about it at, at serious length at some time in, in the future. But I really just shot through that series. It, it has remarkable performances. It's incredibly well written. Uh, the actors, I mean, everyone in it, there isn't a weak spot among the group. Some really cool um, guest appearances throughout. Everyone from Joey Pants to uh, Steve Buscemi show up on it. It's really kind of glorious. Um I also uh, read a comic book that I really enjoyed. It's probably one of the best things that I've read in years called My Favorite Thing is Monsters by Emil Ferris. It's a, a period piece set in the 1960s about the time that the author, she was a little girl. And the lead character is this uh, strange little girl who doesn't really get along with 
other kids her own age and sort of her relationship with her brother growing up in the late 1960s, the civil rights movement, all this stuff is sort of happening in the background. And she really loves monsters. So she reads those sort of Warren style monster magazines and horror stories and her whole self image is of herself as sort of a monster. So the way that she draws herself as a character is sort of as kind of a werewolf girl. So she has little fangs and pointed ears and it's set against her trying to investigate the death of a woman who lives in her apartment complex. And as she sort of peels back layers of all this stuff, it's sort of her being kind of confronted with sort of these adult realities and that, you know, real monsters aren't the ones in these stories that are sort of these weird misunderstood people hunted by, um, you know, people with pitchforks and torches. Um, and at the same time, her kind of, grappling with sort of a childish view of the world uh kind of coming in head to head with an adult sort of image of the world when she might not quite be ready to be there and it's kind of a really intimate story about what it's like to be a strange child that on some level i can really understand because i was kind of a weird child and what i really love about it structurally is that it's drawn in a series of what look like ballpoint pens it's like amazingly illustrated um, to look like it's the drawings of this girl in her notebook. Like she's explaining the story out as if this is an incredibly elaborate diary. Um, and it's done in sort of like blue and black ballpoint pens or some pencil, um, red. I mean, it's really amazing. And oftentimes the, the backdrop, the pages that it appears to be on look like they're repurposed backs of like ditto sheets from school or there's the, the famous notebook lines that you see on there. Like this is done in a, a notebook thing that she's bound together. It's really remarkable. It's, it's one of the, the best comics that I've read in easily a decade. It is, it's called My Favorite Thing is Monsters. Um, I know there's going to be another volume of it. It's put out by Fantagraphics, and it is glorious. So, how how is this? Um, how close is this to? Is this something my eight year old can read? Or no, okay. no, this is <laughs> okay. definitely an adult thing. Um, it's definitely written for grown ups. Yeah, but okay. it's it's not like super gratuitous, but it does go into stuff because it's you know in a weird sort of way this ten year old girl being confronted by weird adult stuff. And the way she tries to process that stuff. Um, obviously, like the reader's going to pick up on more things than the lead character even does. But it's really, really quite good. Um, it, it's it's remarkable. Um, That's awesome. Also something, I, I want, I'm going to check it out for sure, Mike. It's really good. Um, I also watched Over the Garden Wall for the first time. Oh, this my is God. Oh. I know. <laughs> it's, I mean, it, it was made back in 2014. Uh, but it was first recommended to me years ago by our good friend Roz Townsend, who uh, recommended it to me. Um, I think I watched the first one or two back then and then just never got back to it. Um, but it's on HBO Plus right now. It is, I guess you could call it a fantasy series about two brothers. Uh, one is like a teenager, the other one's like a six-year-old. And they're lost in sort of these woods in the sort of a fantasy realm. But it's a fantasy realm that's heavily influenced by... Um, I get sort of turn of the century children's illustrations, you know, the sort of children's book where there'd be like a frog in a fancy coat who's riding a bicycle with a big wheel in the front of it. I mean, it's that kind of Grimm, Grimm's fairy with, tales sort of is a big thing, right? 
Yeah, there's a there's a bit of a little Edward Gorey in it. It's yeah. definitely very strange, <laughs> and it's wonderful. It's it's remarkably heartfelt, and it's ten episodes, only one season, but each episode's only twelve. 12 minutes long so altogether it's like the length of a movie and, and, and well the thing that I think isn't so I've, I watched it with my son years ago and we rewatch it twice a year probably uh, what's kind of incredible about it is yes it retains that sense of being from a period but it's of course an indistinct period um, you, you're, it's a fantasy period but the music the songs in it are so incredible like they are so weirdly childlike um, there's there's a, there's a sense of childlike wonder that pervades the entire show, but it also is it also is sort of cut with this Miyazaki esque look at um, malevolence, which is you can have a view of a person or a situation at first that generates a lot of fear because you assume there's some danger, um, but. In most instances, it's not danger because there's evil. It's danger because there's a misunderstanding or something is hidden or someone needs something. And the main characters are obviously the lens through which you uncover this. And it's through the lens of a teenager and a six-year-old boy and a frog. <laughs> and, a a, frog. and a bird. And a talking bird. Um, the, and I love that. I love it when, of course, there is an evil entity in it. Uh, but I love the idea of having a show that's about telling parables and the way that you confront the the way that you confront malevolence is not this needs to be vanquished through force. It's what is causing this strife, you know, um, and they t generally tend to stumble over it. Right. And in ways that are really that are usually pretty surprising and special. So this sounds actually pretty compelling. Um, would you knowing my disinclination towards everything ever uh would you recommend this to me yes yes i would i think you would okay. really enjoy it I, it's cool. also a very quick watch um yeah. you can it's it's episodic but it has sort of these ongoing narratives and then it ties them all together it's a show that i think rewards a second viewing though too oh yeah because there are it's a show that um, just sort of starts in media res where the characters are just lost in the woods and we don't really know anything about them or their backstory. And it gets filled out as you go. And there are things that if you learn things and revelations from later in that 10 episode series, um, it's rewarding because you can, you can, you can see that stuff right in the very beginning. So I think watching it twice is probably the, the ideal. It's really good. And I think you would enjoy it, Sam. Okay, cool. And the I mean, the comic book sounded. I'm I'm already interested in the comic book, so that's oh, uh, two for two for uh, for for me today. So that's you're batting Yay. pretty well. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, there's a couple. There's a there's a lot of good stuff that's been coming out. Um, I watched the Perry Mason show on HBO, and yeah. it's really quite good. Have you watched it at all, Sam? I have not. Um, for you know, for obvious reasons. But do they use the Ozzy Osbourne soundtrack at all? Uh, no, unfortunately. Oh, darn. <laughs> it's okay. uh, a period piece set in the 1930s. I don't know if there is any attempt to connect him to the the classic version of the character as sort of the uh, the guy that you see in the 1950s TV show or the series of novels. Um, right. But I, I it, there's an impression that this is, I guess you could say, a prequel series. This is him very early in his career. And... Okay. It starts out with him as a private investigator, which right off the bat, 
that's a way to get me into a show. Cause it's, for me, the private investigator is the coolest job that a character can have in a piece of fiction. And, uh, <laughs> I'm uh, immediately on board the hard luck private investigator. It takes place in 1932 around this case where a kidnapping of an infant goes wrong. The kid is found dead. And now one of the parents has been accused of murdering this kid of it being an inside job and uh, Perry Mason, a private investigator, is brought on uh, to work for this lawyer, played by John Lithgow, um, who is always amazing in everything, uh, to sort of investigate this and get to the bottom of it and to defend this this person from uh, being accused of this crime. And it's very clear that the uh, prosecutor, who is uh, going to be running for mayor soon, played by Stephen Root, who is remarkably Oh my God, menacing, I love Stephen Root. <laughs> Stephen Root is incredible, um, and I did not expect to be as intimidated by Stephen Root as I was in this series, um, but he is he is amazing, and uh, the role of Perry Mason is played by Matthew Reese from uh, The Americans. Uh, it's really a great cast all around. Um, I would highly, highly recommend it. It's, ten, it's only eight episodes long, which right off the bat is one of my favorite. I find that the older I get, the more I really get drawn into the idea of short TV seasons that uh, wanting something with the fat trimmed off. And this one is, is remarkably fat free. It's just really good stuff. Neat. And uh, I think they're going to do the, the formula of one case per season. Uh, he starts out as a private investigator over the course of the first season. He does become the new defense attorney and it's him having to learn to become a defense attorney. Um, while doing and it's it's quite good cool. uh, i should i should go back and watch more than the first episode <laughs> yeah it's it's quite good yeah. i mean there's a lot of tv shows i think the other one the only other thing i think i've really gotten into and this is another one that i'd love to do a panel episode on someday is bojack horseman which it's it's frequently it's a show that will punch its characters and its audience in the stomach quite frequently um, it's a show that I think gets away with being as introspective and, um, it's, it's oftentimes gut wrenching to watch. So I don't think I, it, but it can also be quite hilarious. Um, it's, it's weird because it's a mixture of, uh, existential dread and animal puns, which I think is <laughs> perfect for some people. Um, it is about a has been sitcom star in a world where some people are just talking animals. I don't think actual animal animals exist in this world. There's one episode that does something really fucked up world building wise, as far as that, because people still eat meat and it's the explanation of that. And it's one of the most nightmarish things that I've ever seen, but it's um, about a sitcom star trying to have a comeback. And in a lot of ways, it's a deconstruction of a lot of, prestige TV where you have a character like Tony Soprano or Walter White or Don Draper who frequently do terrible shit, often unforgivable shit. And they're still the protagonist and you kind of have a complicated relationship with them. And what Bojack Horseman does is it's about a character who wants to try to be a better person without having to do the hard introspective work and finding out that that's impossible and trying to have some kind of a redemption arc. And then a thing happens in the last season 
that you don't normally have in a show like this, which is all of the shit that he's done that you've followed him through and you've seen him kind of get better and become a better person. It comes back. And instead of the usual thing, you get in a lot of shows where a heroic death is something, you know, a la Darth Vader that ultimately just vindicates someone of every horrible shit thing they've done. They refuse to let that happen. And it's like, he's just going to have to live with the consequences of his actions. And we're not going to let the audience off the hook. We're going to make you really think about what, what is forgiveness for something? What, and it doesn't offer any, any pat answers because there aren't any pat answers. What does it really mean? You know, in the age of me too, or whatever, what does it really mean to become a better person? What does it really mean to face the consequences of your actions? What is it? What does it mean to be someone worthy of forgiveness? What does even forgiveness look like? And there's a lot of that mixed in there, and it's really quite touching in times. It's really amazing. It has one of the most remarkable casts that I've ever seen. You know, Will Arnett, um, uh, Aaron Paul, um, Amy Sedaris, um, Alison Brie. I mean. Uh, it also has uh, Paul F. Tompkins as rival former 90s sitcom star Mr. Peanut Butter, who's much more emotionally healthy in all the ways that Bojack isn't, um, who it, he's kind of wonderfully and delightfully infuriating how chipper he is. He's a, a, a golden lab who was on a TV show that's sort of like that. I guess you could say Bojack is kind of a, a Bob Saget type, but his show is definitely very TGIF. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, but it's it's a show that's really worth worth watching, and it is often heart-wrenching. I've, I was able to marathon it, but I can definitely follow or at least push forward the advice I was given when I said I was starting to watch it, which is take some breaks sometimes because it may drive you to drink. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was originally going to stay away from it because I thought it was going to be those shows that I would find really compelling but really difficult to watch because I'm super embarrassed all the time. Like, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Um, like, it's a super, it's a really good TV show. I'd, I'd recommend it to anybody except if you're very sensitive to embarrassment because you're constantly embarrassed for the characters because I'm one of those people. Now I'm thinking uh, maybe I shouldn't watch it because I've got enough existential dread. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) I have heard, though, that it's actually, of all the shows out there, the only one that seems to deal seriously and sensitively and honestly about things like mental illness and substance abuse and depression. Okay. Um, That it's a show that also rejects the idea that a grand gesture can wipe away all of your actions. Right. And which, uh, which sounds great. I mean, yeah. Oh, it's I, great, I, but it's yeah. not for everybody. No, and I'm, I, uh, I'm, I'm, I might, might be everybody here. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, cause, it's definitely but, something I'd want to do a, a panel on someday. I think because I know there's at least one person who's in our regular rotation of of guests who is a mega fan. Uh, for a lot of the the reasons. And it's a show that you don't want this guy's life, but there are times that, you know, as somebody personally who has imposter syndrome that I can definitely relate to. It's, Hmm. there are things that are just, and oftentimes remarkably quotable. Um, It's, it's really an amazing show. 
and it oftentimes just beautiful and kind of haunting and it gets in your head and it doesn't give you the easy pat solution to anything. You just kind of what the, one of the last lines of the series is, you know, I think Bojack says something like, yeah, well, you know, life's a bitch and then you die. And then another character goes, yeah, well, sometimes, but sometimes life's a bitch and you just keep on living. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> ah, I don't know. But, but I do have a question for you and I'm going to feel very ninth grade English teacher because it's a compare and contrast question. Okay. Um, for your, uh, for your, for your soprano panel, which I am, I am, I am looking looking forward to listening to. Mm. Um, I like how polite uh, it, Sam is, and that he doesn't use this as an opportunity it, to try to beg to be on it. <laughs> actually, this was my this. Th- I was trying to politely disinvite myself. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Go on. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to say I, I want to listen to it. Um, <laughs> Not be on it. I want to listen to it. Uh, is uh, um, I the, the comparison between mob media and since we just spent a good twenty minutes screaming about cop media, mm-hmm. sort of the the glorification of cops and the glorification of mobsters and the yeah. and the remarkable similarities between and betwixt is something yeah. I would really like to hear uh, some panelists sort of yeah, dig I, into. I, I definitely think so. I think that cop uh, stuff, the sort of glorification of this person who we allow as audience members to go out and do violence is the similar thing to um, what you get with something like The Sopranos. And I think the comparison of something like BoJack Horseman, the idea that um, we're used to these characters, oh, he's complicated, he has a sad backstory, or he feels bad and is tortured by the terrible things he does. Um what I like is I know Bojack makes it explicit where it's like, that shit doesn't matter. You're still a fucking asshole. It doesn't matter if you've been abused, you can still be an abuser. Uh, but I think that that's more implicit in the Sopranos because uh, Tony Sopranos, he kind of deserves everything he gets in that series. And mm-hmm. that's really unusual for mob media. That mob right. media is kind of, like people who were royalists in a weird sort of way. The idea that we allow this, you know, the sense of maybe it's a monarchy or whatever. We allow there to be a class of people for whom the, the rules don't exist, that they're just above us in some way. And they're allowed to not follow rules that we have to follow. And we can sort of live vicariously through, through them for a power fantasy, but we can also, um, sympathize with them in a way and it's kind of like kind of like Stockholm Syndrome we kind of feel like we've been held hostage by these terrible characters and because we're so intimately familiar with them and they often have a really compelling actor doing an amazing performance whether it's you know uh, James Gandolfini or um, somebody like say Brian Cranston that we forgive things of them that we would never forgive of a real person and how that can be kind of a toxic parasocial relationship with a fictional character. Um, what I really like in The Sopranos, and this is something that I know George R.R. Martin does a lot in his writing, is every so often uh, there's an awareness that that parasocial relationship is being caused um, by the compelling nature of how it's written and how good these actors are and how good the writing is, that every so often the writers need to make that character do something that reminds you of who it is that you're following. 
Right. And so you have no illusions about who this person is. That it's amazing considering that Tony Soprano is a guy who kills and steals for a living. And there's this mythology of what mobsters tell themselves. And the trick is to have this show be sort of marinated in that without also marinating the audience in it to the degree that they start buying the bullshit. There's a difference between what the audience should be exposed to and what the audience should believe. And it's a delicate dance. And I think that the best mafia media does it well. The worst mafia media makes you go, yeah, society would be better if this, this guy who was a patriarch who's allowed to kill people. And it's because it is like a king, um, what you're essentially looking at. Right. That this person should be allowed to do whatever and take steps that no one else can. And, and in the comparison to the cop media, he does what needs to be done. Right. Um, yeah, I I think that The Sopranos does that really well because I think it goes in with a certain awareness. Um, and there's a lot of mob media that doesn't. I I I think The Sopranos did a better job of literally any other mob media I've ever consumed. I still do not believe it succeeded looking at its fan base back in the day. Mm, is yeah. how I would put it. Fan um, bases can ruin almost anything. <laughs> Yeah, that's part of the reason why I, I think I'd prefer to listen to other people talk about The Sopranos at length than uh, than myself. Um, After watching six seasons of it. Yeah, no, no, I'm good, thanks. <laughs> yeah, okay, I, I totally understand that. I've had the same sort of thing with, with many things, but I mean, it's one of the reasons that I've never gotten around to watching Rick and Morty, is that it sounds exactly like a show that I would enjoy, but I think I need the memory of people stomping on a McDonald's counter and screaming at people to be yeah. really much colder than it is right now for me to be able to enjoy it. Because my God, those people managed to knock star Wars fans off the most toxic fan, a leaderboard. And that is a hell of an accomplishment. <laughs> I, I, I'd want to see your analysis because I doubt and not, not because I think Rick and Morty fandom is great. Oh no. <laughs> but uh um but yeah, I, I you know, I, I admit that it would be it would be a fight because yeah, that was that was pretty ridiculous. The toxic <laughs> fandom leaderboards are I think it I, I don't know how to exactly put it, but I'd say the top five include, but not necessarily in this order. Right. I'd say um video games. Okay. Star Wars. Mm -hmm. um, Rick and Morty is really high on that list. It's weirdly unique. Um, comic books um, are really high on that in terms of, can you find the absolute worst people in your midst? Can you find people who are nothing but the fandom is an excuse to essentially be a slow onboarding to Nazis? Um, but it's there. It's, it's yeah. all there. Um, but I'd say those, those guys are definitely all up in there. Um, I would want to disaggregate video games and comic books a little bit um, because I think there's the AAA gaming fandom and then uh, which is by far the most numerous category and then there's other gaming fandoms in there that are a little bit different uh, that I think maybe deserve a little bit uh, a little bit of disaggregation from the AAA similarly with comic books as you've got the the you know, the big publisher fans, and then you've got the indie comics folk and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. I, th I think the difference between, say, Star Wars and Rick and Morty and comic books and video games is one of these things is a franchise and one of these things is a medium. Yeah. Right. 
Um, and I think that obviously a medium is going to be a lot more diverse. You're going to see a lot of that. And I, I do want to say that I'm not talking about an ambient level of, of toxicity that infects everybody. I'm saying that it's like comic books and video games are a fandom that has a malignant tumor. <laughs> and yeah. you can either irradiate that tumor or you can just let it continue to grow. But it it, it is growing and it is ugly even if it's not touching every part of the body. And um, clearly all you need to do is to go onto YouTube, watch some pop culture video, and very quickly you will be recommended the worst sorts of people in in the algorithm. And uh, it's shocking how angry people get about the stupidest shit. And maybe it's just that we live in a world with a global pandemic where police are beating the fucking murdering people, um, where um, just the worst things seem to be happening outside your window on a regular basis. I just can't get that angry about Star Wars anymore. I really can't. And I'm going to say that's, God, it's like fucking freeing how (laughs) angry I used to get about some of this shit. I used to get so fucking angry about... Uh, Star Wars prequels and DC Comics editorial decisions and, you know, oh, I want to be, you know, that the equivalent of that Arrested Development picture of We Demand to be Taken Seriously (laughs) is just, there is something that feels so good about just going, you know what, that's not for me anymore and I'm happy to hand it off to someone else if it makes them happy. As long as I'm allowed to have the parts of it still in print for me to go check out, if you know, you know, as long as I can still get trade paperback collections of the eras of characters that I really enjoy, or can still get DVD collections of seasons of Star Trek or whatever that I enjoy, then I'm happy, you know. And I can I can just let go how bad the Last Jedi was and just pretend that. Uh, not the Last Jedi. I love the Last Jedi. I'm sorry. I mean, the Rise of Skywalker was terrible, um, and I just don't care. After a certain point, I'm like, "Wow, that sucked," it, and just walk away. Well, Mike, I'll just quickly go through whatever I had on the top of my head, and a couple that I now that Sam's on. That's it. Always, if if I have the chance to talk to you about stuff, um, I, I'll say. In just in deference to the giant franchises, I have been watching this third season of Star Trek Discovery and been pleasantly surprised with their sort of their sort of switch up. I think it undoes a lot of the undoes a lot of the silliness and the stuff that makes it not feel very Starfleet, um, and is definitely worth checking out. I, no, I have no more to say about it than that. Um, but of course, I mostly watch movies, and the one thing that I wanted to share with Sam. Um, but it's impossible to be in the same place is there is a two, a pair of documentaries. I think one was filmed in 1998 and one is filmed in the year 2000 or 2001, um, filmed by a Japanese, uh, reporter named Tatsuya Mori. And they were about the, um, I don't remember what it was called now, basically the Japanese death cult that unleashed the sarin gas attack on the Tokyo subway in 1995. Oh, um, Aum Shinriko? Yes, Aum No, but the new name is something, it still exists now, and they've they've rebranded as something, and it's all over Asia. Um, It's a super bland name. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. uh, yeah. So this is a, 
it is fascinating because they're like two and a half hour documentaries and the guy who is the filmmaker who you don't even you don't see him or hear his voice at all basically until the end of the second uh, the second documentary um which is basically his coda his his sort of end of this it is him embedding himself with people in the cult in japan in various locations in japan in the wake of the trial that happens where you know they're still trying to capture people left over from this they're still fugitives they're wanting to put them the charismatic leader guy on trial and you are basically there with the pr people and all of the hangers-on who are still there trying to do the do their religious thing in the wake of this the revelation that hey the people at the top of your organization were sick twisted fucks who their idea was is to try to bring about world war three you know like these like how what are the people who are left over and who's still doing it what kind of people are they and it's fascinating because of course you uh if you hang around with those people even as in over the course of two hours it humanizes them in a way that is unexpected and what I like about this, as you move through to the second one, where you're, where it's like years after, and there's been like the death penalty has been given to um, the leader and a couple people, and it's still sort of fading out. You have a tension between the people that are still in Om Sharinko, I believe it's called Om, and and the people that live in the neighborhoods around these communal houses, and the people are in. The, around in the neighborhood of course are like we want you out of our they're picketing they have a permanent presence they set up trailers around there so they can picket 24 hours a day and this goes on for years and even the people in the neighborhood who are there who've been staffing these sort of protest signs and going to these rallies eventually become friends with the people who hang around there because just living in proximity to these people uh, so much um creates a sort of bond between them and it's kind of fascinating because it's clear that the people that are still sticking around are not the kind that are trying to mix their and gas in a warehouse they're the lost souls who are looking for something for some kind of community um and they forge these uneasy friendships and the f- the, cl- the closure is amazing because when it comes to a head the one of the far-right nationalist japanese parties just uh, just makes an appearance of oh there's picketing going on oh there are cameras here we're gonna show up too because we don't ever get any news coverage so we're gonna sort of make a make a stink and say like oh we're gonna we should prosecute we should execute these guys to get on camera and it's totally clear that no longer are the own people uh the dangerous ones the dangerous ones are the nazis that are still there (laughs) that are still waiting in the wings for any opportunity to come out and be somehow legitimized by the fact that there is popular anger over something where where that we should take violence and it's like it was it's a beautiful little sort of slice about looking at a weird blip in a culture and then of course like the nationalists just come roll right in being like hey this is our opportunity to be here and to get some good press it's a it's i i know that uh that sam has a museum of propaganda um and it is it's this is a fascinating little slice of um of a obviously a point in time which it's they're still around but obviously they're not just not as news newsworthy or noteworthy as they have before um so this called they're called the documentaries are called a the letter a and the second one's called a2 um a for ohm i believe uh i've got that sounds fascinating it's it is it's a slog to go through because it's not it's not like it's a it's a frontline documentary it's a guy holding a camera and talking with people 
um, and just cutting together very loosely. Um, and it's not, it's not, it's not fantastic at all. And the tragic part I think is that because taboo subjects in Japan like that don't get any, uh, any play, it would never played on Japanese TV and it was only exhibited a few times in museums. So basically the Japanese people have never seen it, you know, outside of being able to order, order a DVD of it from a, from a non-Japanese distribution company. Most people in Japan have never seen those documentaries. Um, so that makes it even crazier. Uh, last night, uh, actually, we, we've been my, me and my family have been watching. There's an animator by the Irish animator by the name of Tom Moore, um, and you might have actually, Mike, you might have actually seen this on Netflix. Song of the Sea was the last big animated movie, and they did The Secret of Kells about ten years ago, maybe a little less than ten okay, years ago. Okay, I recognize the name. I haven't seen them though. Uh, the newest one was, which is on Apple, I believe, is called The Wolf Walkers. And these are these are sort of the the anti they're much like Ardman Studios, I would say, to some extent, where um, they are clearly people who are these uh, animators who grew up loving on Disney and stuff and who just have their own voice and their own style. Um, the Tom Moore stuff is obviously they're all based. They have Irish cast and they have. Irish heritage and history as a part of them and this one is sort of a magical fairy tale about a uh Sean Bean plays a an English he's obviously from Yorkshire because he still has the accent this is like in the 17th century in Kilkenny and he plays the chief hunter for the the lord the lord of the of Kilkenny who's a they're all English right and they're in Ireland and so they're the occupying army and in in the woods surrounding the walled city, there are these wolves that have been attacking sheep and attacking woodcutters. And it turns out that there are wolf walkers, which are people who are like wargs, basically people who become wolves and who run around. And it becomes a story about Sean Bean's daughter who wants to become a hunter who by fate and circumstance, she becomes a wolf walker as well. And it's like, it is, they're all they all are so gorgeously animated they're a style that looks like you know that uh tapestry that's the battle of hastings you guys know what i'm talking about this is a famous british tapestry that is they sort of have that weird medieval flat perspective that you would have seen in an an illustrated illuminated books where they don't quite have the have the flair for doing things geometrically so things are arranged and blocky in very flat-like ways. The backgrounds and, and the art is a mix between having these really strange geometrical blocky flat backgrounds but having really vivid and hand-drawn looking characters and foregrounds. Um, the, the music is just incredible. The sort of the fantasy nature of them is so so like immediately approachable to kids and to grown-ups alike that it, the whole piece, the whole package, Sean Bean doesn't die in this one, just spoilers. Oh wow. Um, <laughs> that is shocking. Doesn't, I know that doesn't happen very often. Um, they but it's it's a beautiful little I look I really want to watch it again soon it's a beautiful little package and it's the type of thing that's just too uh too far afield of what disney wants to make and now now it's left to other animators around the world to start taking the medium and using it and of course i'm a total sucker um i'm a total sucker for that so those are my my most recent recommendations um i'm reading the uh what's it uh wolf hall i i'm blanking on the author's author's name it's a british author about uh thomas cromwell who is i think the great uncle of oliver cromwell 
and to- uh, Cromwell was the um, he was basically the political advisor to Henry VIII in trying to negotiate his divorce with Rome, and then eventually helped legitimize the creation of the Church of England. Um, and it's was it was a miniseries with Mark Rylance that was one of the things that made me fall in love with Mark Rylance as an actor. Um, and the book is beautiful incredibly compelling historical fiction so if you are interested in historical fiction even as dry as english historical fiction can be it's pretty fucking cool jesus fuck the bio tapestry is 70 meters long yeah yes it is i had no idea it was that long (laughs) 230 feet yikes sorry i wanted to make sure no that's all right (laughs) that sounds all that sounds amazing i i yeah. Um you wow, it it it's it's uh, uh batting pretty well today on the uh, on the recommendations for me. <laughs> we just hope you store up our energy. You store it up for 6 months, you know, and then what are you going to you got to distill it all, you know. Okay. I do have a recommendation though. It's it is it's very dog foody in flavor. Um, You're not going to recommend dog food to us, are you? <laughs> yeah, Alpo. It's, 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 Things haven't gotten that Alpo. bad in the Mulvey household, have they? Because I can, I can run to the supermarket for you guys. <laughs> no. Um, uh, uh, can I just speak for a moment about how much of a lifeline the Discord has been? Oh, yeah. Oh. It's Go ahead, please. You can, you can be the yeah. one to record the commercial. We'll start. The commercial starts now. Your life and Discord. No, um, do, 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 do. I could go on forever. Um, so no, uh, 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 Casey started uh, a a Discord for Radio versus the Martians, and uh, me being skeptical of literally everything the involving technology that uh, these days, uh, I was like, oh, I'll give it a shot. You know, it, it's it's uh, uh, it's new and and. You know, anything that makes it easier for me to keep in contact with with the radio versus the Martians folks is definitely something I need. And um, it, it's turned into sort of whatever I'm doing. I usually have the discord window open somewhere. Uh, and I and it's it's my only social interaction right now, other than talking to Becky um, and, and hanging out with Becky is is. It reminds me a lot. It ha- to me, it's something I've been looking for for a while, which is I grew up on, I'm, I may have discussed them before, on these um, 300 baud Apple II systems called D-Dial, which was uh, six or seven modems plugged into an Apple IIe. Um, and you could, and you logged in and it was, you just chat with each other. It's a, it's a chat room that everybody is now familiar with, just way earlier and a sort of um in the chicago area a a very distinct sort of chat culture sort of emerged which i was a part of and i there really hasn't for the last decade plus there really hasn't been uh a lot of that around um there aren't you know um that i'm aware of that that was sort of the the people I, i hung out with and so i've been sort of looking you know especially these days looking for a place to be in uh on chat where I could just type at people at random times and just bring up a subject or whatever and say, Oh my God, this particular piece of technology is annoying the shit out of me. Um, and the discord quickly became that, uh, and, and we'll talk about anything and everything. And it's been, it's been precisely what I've needed to keep kind of keep my brain going these last few weeks. And so, uh, 
We're glad you're there, Sam. And I think it bears note, and I really appreciate the praise. It's fun to have around. And it's not a Facebook for celebrities because it's it's not just the regulars that are on there. It's a bunch of fans who are spend their time and, and eyeballs and thumbs um, trying to put thoughts and to share stuff with us. And it's been great. Uh, it's the, it is it, for just to say, you said, Sam, it is exactly the kind of interaction I needed where me reducing my sort of media internet consumption of stuff is down to almost nothing. Um, it's been, right. it's been the one, uh, it's been the one thing that I'm going to say is like, Oh, this is, this has been my social life for the last few months. And so I'm really happy. Well, Mike, we should post a, we should post a permanent invite on the, um, on the website for this episode. So if people who, if people who aren't, weren't on the Facebook group sort of want to edge their way in, anyone's welcome. We're not, we're not going to, there, there's no purity test whatsoever. We're just well, not being a Nazi. Yeah, well, fuck Nazis. This is true. We will punch you. Yeah, we'll if you show up in speaking. weird, if you show up in weird nationalist buses with loudspeakers on them and start shouting, we're, we're, we'll show you the door. <laughs> you just, yeah, we, if there is a banhammer on that in Discord, I haven't had to use it. Thank goodness. Yeah, good. That's it, good. We've been like, I think we've been remarkably lucky that we have not ever been the sort of podcast that has awful fans or people that want to fight with you, people who are desperate to correct you, people that are screaming at you. Um, we've been really lucky that our people have been hilarious and funny and strange and they want to interact with us and not in the sort of toxic bullshitty ways that nerd stuff can go. We've been We've been very lucky, and I also definitely want to thank all of the people that have continued to back us on Patreon through yeah, all of this, yes. because um, we haven't been producing new stuff, and this is our first recording that we have done in five months, six months, and um, we appreciate you sticking by with us. And one of the things that we, we decided to do in the interim is that we've been releasing episodes that have been exclusive to Patreon to people, and... One of the things I've always kind of feared with those is that I don't listen to them when I re-release them. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, God, I hope I haven't said anything that aged badly on that one. I suppose I'll hear about it. Um, but those those episodes have always been available to Patreon people. So Patreon people have, for their money, not gotten anything new in six months and have been incredibly kind and decent to us, knowing that... Uh, we are basically giving them a thing they already got for free. And um, I've been patient with us. And um, one of the things that we've tried to do is we haven't been taking cash from people. I mean, we pay for um, we pay for our hosting still, but everything else we've been donating to Black Lives Matter, uh, Seattle King County for the past five to six months, we have donated. Um, with your guys' money, approximately $2,000 That's so awesome. Far. That's awesome. And it's it's all going to a very good cause. Um, all that shit with the cops that we talked about at the very beginning, this is the fight for that to change. The fight to defund and uh, disarm and to fundamentally pull out at the root all of the nasty shit that comes into public safety and to create something that actually makes people safe. That's the stuff that, that BLM is fighting for. That's the stuff we support. And knowing that we, it's, 
I think this is the thing that kind of is the undercurrent of a lot of my political beliefs, but I think it's really this, the situation here is that nothing in our society is inevitable. Nothing has to be bad. Things can be so much better if we just demand that they be better, that we don't accept anything less than that and say, no, we don't have to take this stuff as a given. Let's, let's put our money and our, our boot leather and whatever towards actually building that better world. So here, here, I Mike. think that you're here, Indeed. you know, let's, let's do that. We're, we're not, I know there's a question they always ask John Wick, are you back? <laughs> um, I can't say I'm kind of back. Um, uh, we're just popping in. We will be back soon. We want to get into the studio and do this stuff for real, but you know, we were definitely feeling the itch. And you know, hey, it's the holiday season, so we've you guys have definitely carried us for a few months, and we appreciate that. And we wanted to give something back, even if it's just me ranting about the cops. <laughs> <laughs> happy Picard Day, guys! Yeah, yeah right. happy, happy Captain Picard Day. Right. Enjoy it from uh, the uh, safe location of your home, um, and remember, take care of yourself, be kind, and fuck the police. <laughs> All right, that sounds good, Mike. Radio vs. the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com.